Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcast, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey for engaging more deeply with your life. I provide stories from my own life and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means the world to me. I'm Becca Piastrelli, and this is Belonging, where I talk about what it means to belong to the earth, to yourself, to your ancestors, and in community. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Belonging, the podcast. It's Becca Piastrelli here. So happy to be here with you in the time and space that I am here with you, the beauty of podcasts. I've got a really awesome episode for you today, a conversation with a friend and former mentor, uh, Lola Pickett. So through her courses and programs, Lola Pickett empowers empaths and sensitive folks to rewire their brains, bodies, and behavior for internal and external resilience, shifting from self-repression to soul expression. She is the published author of The Wild Messenger's Alchemical Tarot and founder of Empathology, an emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual resiliency training program. Her offerings blend cutting-edge neuroscience with trauma healing, herbalism, permaculture, ritual, and play to create powerful and lasting results. When not facilitating transformational work, you'll find Lola on a hike, wildcrafting medicines, and loving up on her husband, kids, and kitten in the mountains north of San Diego, California. So I asked Lola to come on this podcast to talk about resilience. And in the time that we were recording, I was feeling really tender and curious about motherhood and pregnancy. There's a theme. You're picking up on it in each of these episodes. And Lola, as a mother of two, was really sweet with sharing her perspective on it, both when we were recording and when we weren't. And as another theme that keeps coming up is the power of naming of reclaiming our names, of naming another human, of renaming yourself. So the conversation kicks off with basically when Lola supported me with my business, my so much more than business, my work, my life's work of moving from the dabblest, 
which used to be what I blogged under and the name I sort of took on to being Becca Piastrelli, my name, and talking about that process. And Lola was not born Lola. And so she talks about the process of coming into her name and in that you letting go of who you were both what I did with the Dablis and what she did with her legal name that she was named at birth. And then the dynamics of naming your child <laughs> and all of that, knowing that, you know, she was named by her mother, a name that never really resonated. And then she has a daughter and that naming process and me thinking about naming my child. Then we move into approaching resilience with integrity, not muscling through and learning to trust yourself really diving deep into that tendency so many of us have to push and that it's not always the best approach for really understanding and knowing what our strength, what our resilience, what our adaptability is. And she gives her tools for resiliency, how to respond when it all feels like too much in the world, treating resilience like trauma work, she educates us on the four Fs, fight, flight, fawn, and freeze. I was very interested in fawn, a people-pleasing tendency, also a way of looking at boundaryless martyrdom as a trauma response. And I think from an ancestral perspective, I find that very interesting. So we talk more about that and how they manifest physically in the world. We talk about perfectionism as a fight response. Fascinating. And we jam on social media addiction because that's a thing. <laughs> that's a that's a mountain I haven't conquered. And um, it just feels like an important thing to always bring, especially in this year and this time when so many of us are more on our screens for connection than in person, right? It's a really lovely episode. Lola is just someone I really admire and her work is deep and powerful and has really supported me in my own journey. So I'm just so thrilled to share her with you if you didn't know her already. So enjoy this conversation with Lola Pickett. Hi, Lola. Hello, Becca. <laughs> We've been connected for many years now. We have. It's been amazing. It, it's been so cool to to grow together and and sort of be witnesses and supports for each other. You've been a wonderful teacher and support to me, particularly when I was shifting from the dabbless to really claiming my name and my work in, in this deeper practice of belonging and returning to ancestral ways. And uh, it's just been so beautiful to watch you and Tigray just go further into the depth of your truth and mm. the way it manifests in the world. Um, so I just really wanted to begin by honoring you and the way that you've supported me because um, I just love you and appreciate you so much. I love hearing that. And I love, I have loved supporting you so much because I think it's so powerful when we reclaim our name and when you were you were going into that process and I have, I've gone through that kind of name reclamation, but also like uncovering process so many times and, and gained so much recentering and grounding and 
empowerment from that process. I was so excited for you. I remember the conversations mm-hmm. when you were leading up to your, you know, initial rebrand and just like the the grief around letting go of a creation and also the excitement of the rebirth. And I know that place. It's so tender and so beautiful. And I was I was so excited for you and still am. Mm-hmm. I love seeing where it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, let's talk about your name. Mm. Because you were not born, Lola. I was not. (laughs) And when I first came in contact with you, you were Fox? Foxy. I was Fox or Foxy. I was. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want to share what happened for you? Because when you share like the steps you've taken to live in like a deeper alignment and truth, I just find it very inspiring. Thank you. Well, my patron saint, Lady Gaga, would be... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'd be remiss, you know. No, I, I'm I'm halfway kidding about that. But truly, I do um, find a lot of inspiration from from people of all kinds of visibility around the courage it takes to claim who you are and to let go of who you were. And that that has been my story more than any other piece, I think. And so, um, it really begins with my early early awareness as a child that my birth name was not my name. And actually, like my birth story even feels like it was not my story, even though that that can't actually be the truth. In in so many ways, it feels like I was thrust into life on earth prematurely because my mom went into labor with me and then labor stopped. And instead of just letting it stop and kind of wait and see, they did a cesarean and lo and behold, there I was, like born two weeks early in a different astrological sign than what I was slated for. And Mm. so there's always been this kind of sense of not quite right about my very existence, including my name. And it's tender because my name came through a dream my mom had. And my birth name was Emily Kate. And I had two last names because my parents were hippies and combined their last names. So I was Emily Kate Scott Walton when I was born, which is like a huge mouthful. And and none of it felt right as soon as I had awareness around it. And so actually from a really young age, I experimented with different names, much to my mom's chagrin because she had this like story of how my name came to her in this dream. And she dreamed of Emily Kate. And I'm like, I- I'm not your dream. Like I'm, I'm me. I'm this child, you know? And as a mom now, that's that's been interesting to net navigate because ironically, my daughter's name came to me in a meditation, not so mm. dissimilar. And so I've really had to like detach from, from the meaning of that and from the permanency of that because of my own journey with this. So I was Sarah for a while. I was Nikki. I was Crystal. I was all kinds of names. And I would actually like change my name at school and make my teachers call me these names and make my family call me these names. And they kind of just laughed at me. And I think it hurt my mom's feelings a bit. But as a as a grown-up, the incorrectness of my name did not fade. And so I tried first by spelling it differently, spelling it in a more European way, um, E-M-E-L-I-E, which felt a little better. But still wasn't quite right. And so as I stepped into more and more of my my kind of spiritual journey and away from societal expectations, I found such a deep kinship in animal 
um, messages and animal messengers. And Fox came to me actually as I met my my now husband. And he was like, you're such a little vixen. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's kind of insulting. <laughs> I don't know if I like this so much. But he called me that. He saw in me this kind of fox spirit. And so I wanted to learn to learn more about this. And in the process of exploring not just like fox spirit and what it means, but actually beginning to look at the animal itself and its behaviors and how I could draw allegories and metaphors from how a fox thrives and and not just survives in the wild and begin to think, how could I translate this into the way I navigate as a human? My life really started to change. And I started to find this fox messenger to be like a deep ally and guide in a very, very personal way. So much so that I felt like this was in essence who I was being, who I was choosing to be. And so I started to take on the name of Fox and Foxy for my nickname, which I had for years, for years and years. And at the same time as I was doing that, my husband also had felt this long, lifelong disconnect from his birth name, his given name, because he was like the third in the line of white men. He had the third at the end of his name and he felt you know, like that was just not who he is. He's not just a third in the line. He is an individual. He's different. He's wilder than his ancestors. And so I said, you know, well, for you, I see a tiger spirit. I see tiger energy very, very clearly. And this is why. And he um, didn't like that either at first. But over time, also found a deep kinship with that animal and what it represents to him personally and and found such a deep kinship that he did actually legally change his name to Tigre. His name before was Richard Allen Pickett III. Not him at all. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine right? him. <laughs> yeah. So when I met him, he was Rick. So we met as Rick and Emily and wow. neither one of those people exist in this day. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty insane. And so, you know, time goes on and my mom is still grappling with my name and she lives not too far away. So we see each other pretty frequently. And she said one day in my living room, I can't call you Foxy. Like, I just can't, I can't do this. You know, she's been trying for, I don't know, it was like three years at that point, just couldn't do it. And so she said, I, I accept that you want to change your name or that Emily isn't who you feel like you are, but I'm going to ask you to find a different name then because I want you to find a name that I can like be comfortable calling you. And of course, that's not my job. My job is not to make her comfortable, but I was also starting to see that Foxy was a little bit one-dimensional as well because I'm not just that energy signature. There's so much more to me. And in fact, I was starting to work with a different animal guide at that time who was a jaguar and the jaguar and I went on a hunt for my name, essentially. And in the course of many, many different intuitive hits of like, follow this trail, oh, then follow that trail. Eventually, what came to me was Lily, but not Lily in English, Lily in the jaguar's language of Tupiwarani, which is Lola. And it's spelled differently. And I am not of that lineage. But the name was correct. And so I said, I'll spell it like L-O-L-A. And immediately was right. None of the other names were 100% fully dimensionally correct for me. And that name was my name. 
Like I just, you know it when you, when you know it, right? It's like meeting your person. It's like, yes, this, something about this is correct. And so Lola is who I became. Lola is who I told my mother I am now. And I remember talking to a client at the time where she was making some brave, bold changes in her life and needed to share them with her family. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, by the time we meet next, you will have told your family this and I will have claimed my new name with mine and we will come together and hold each other accountable for that. And we did. And so I became Lola and about a year later I changed it legally. So I am now Lola Archer Pickett and I am married to Tigray Pickett who has no middle name anymore because that's, he feels complete. And um, we've totally revolutionized our entire identities at the core of us, who we are is not changed, but how the world knows us is. And we can see very clearly then who holds us to our past and who's willing to be with us as we are now, because those folks have a very hard time remembering to call us by our true names. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There has been such a theme for me in a lot of interviews I've been doing lately. I had an, um, conversation with Amaho Malfino, who was born Maria Jose. Mm. And in Argentina, she immigrated to Canada. Everyone made fun of the Jose part. So she went by Maria. And then she reclaimed Maria Jose as Maho mm. in the last few years. Love it. Yeah. And um, I also interviewed Lara Valeta Vesta, yes. uh, who, who brought on Vesta, who is a goddess. And and the conversations I had with these two and with you now are really landing this, this idea of like reclaiming identity. Yeah. Particularly Lara and Maho were talking about patriarchy where like in patriarchy, like the women never have, it's the name of their fathers. Like the women just never have the name. And when you look back and like, if you're privileged enough to look back into ancestral history and genealogical records, like the women are just lost. They you know, are. maybe they're mentioned, but they're often, you know, Mrs. Man's name. They're under the umbrella of the men. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's a, there's a sense of loss in that. And so you, this is very cool to me because it just feels like a step further, you and your partner in this, and, and you you have a family, you have children, like in this yeah. new way of, of claiming identity and not. I mean, even saying that you have family members who are like, "Eh, I don't know what to do. I think about gender pronouns with this too, you know, totally. just being like, well, this, but this is who I am and sticking with it. That feels very powerful. Mm -hmm. It is. And I laugh, I laugh about it because I think about future genealogical research that may happen long after I've died. About you. (laughs) About me. And like, how are they going to even know what is what? Because there are four legal name changes related to marriage, divorce, name reclamation, and birth certificates for my kids are wrong. So I have to bring with me anytime I travel internationally, like a a literal file of paperwork to prove who I am, which to me is hilarious because my passport is correct. My driver's license is correct. But if I travel with my children, there's no way other than our word that we're related to tell Mm. unless I bring this trail of paper proof, which I find very, very interesting. And in fact, it is on my project list to go and change 
their birth certificates and I may even have to go and change mine, which I think would be extremely bold to say I erase who I was because otherwise my name now, you know, it's like it's floating in the middle of nowhere like I was never born. Whoa. Okay, so I can't help but feel, okay, when we're recording this, I'm pregnant. When this comes mm-hmm. out, I don't know if I'm pregnant or not. <laughs> when this comes out, my hope is no. Um, <laughs> I have a baby in my arms. But, um, ah, naming a child, Lola. Like, mm-hmm. ugh. so having gone through all of this and you have two children that you've named, like, do you have a, did you have a process around that? Like, basically, I'm just like asking for support because we, yeah haven't chosen a name when we're recording this. So we have ideas, but then I just feel like, oh my gosh, pressure around gender identity and pressure. I know. And I'm like, I just want them to tell me, mm. you know, yeah, I don't want to mess up and I want to honor well, who they are. <laughs> I love that. It's so, it's so big and it's so compassionate and you can trust all of you in the process, you know, that even if you were to like get it wrong, which is, you know, just like a label really, that it's mutable. It can be reclaimed and that can be such a powerful process for that being to discover and find out who it is that they are then. You know, like for me, I wouldn't wish that I had been born named Lola because mm. it it wouldn't have set me up for the powerful medicine around identity and around belonging to yourself that I'm here as a messenger of, as a purveyor of. And so the journey is not going to be incorrect no matter what happens. You know, it's like it's always an important inquiry if that inquiry is there. And sometimes the name, the name does come, you know, like for me, for Lyra, my daughter, I had this vision in a meditation of this star that I used to be fascinated by when I was little and I had forgotten. I had forgotten for 30 something years that this one star had always like every time I heard its name would feel this little zing inside of me of like, ooh, there's something like really cool over there in the sky. And it's the star Vega and it was Vega of the lyre. And Lyre, the um, the instrument, is a constellation, and it's also known as Lyra. And when I was in this meditation, when I was about, I was about like 12, maybe 10 weeks pregnant at the time. I didn't know at that time the gender, you know, the, the biological gender of my child. Nevertheless, it was like I was zoomed into this constellation, and it, it was very clear, like Lyra, the message is Lyra. And when I went to go look at the placement of this constellation in the sky, trippy things happened. So the name that I chose for myself as a last name when I was stepping out of my practice marriage, my first marriage, was Archer after Artemis um, and Diana, the huntress Mm -hmm. of all wild truths, you know, and a badass. I was like, that's who I want to be. I want to be somebody who stands up for what's right and isn't afraid to be alone in the process and is so surrounded by nature and in deep communion with the wild things. That's that's me. So Archer became my last name and then it became my middle name. And I'm sharing this because Lyra in the sky is positioned, at least from our perspective here on earth, 
between Sagittarius the archer and Vulpecula the fox. Ah. <laughs> and I was like, you can't make this up. Like this, there's no way. This is this is ridiculous. This there's definitely something to this. And so Archer has become the family name that I choose to pass down. And so it is now my daughter's middle name. So as it stands right now, her name is Lyra Archer Pickett. Tigre and I couldn't come up with a better last name. So we were just like, whatever, we'll just keep it. It's fine. <laughs> it's no big deal. Yeah. yeah. Um, changed. We've changed things enough around here for now. Um, so she's Lyra Archer Pickett and Hudson. Hudson was named for the Hudson River Valley in upstate New York, a place that I've, I have never been but that I have always loved because of the fall leaves and the brilliance of that seasonal transformation in autumn is always my favorite time of year. We don't get that much here in California. So Hudson, you know, a place I've always wanted to go, a place of change that I've always appreciated. And that's how we found his name and his dad and I, it's like the only name we could agree on, you know, <laughs> that was, that was the only yeah biological male supposedly right whatever name and they both like their names at this point Hudson has had a fun time claiming different names because he knows my story around this and so he feels very free to be like I'm this right now it's like okay great like cool what do you want us to call you he hasn't done that as much recently and our daughter is like I feel like this is my name like I'm supposed to be Lyra I'm like okay well it's up to you lady you know you let me know at any time if you need to change course. We're on your, we're on your ship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm really hearing in all of that, like a, a willingness to just lean into what the, this human being yeah. wants and feels is true as opposed totally. to maybe your experience with your mother, which was like a deep attachment and Very deep. a sense of and loss. The story, the story around it like yeah. we have a cool story but you know we can always create a a fascinating story right now too yeah yeah Ooh, cool thank you for sharing all of that of course it's fun to yeah. remember i think i know the name but <laughs> it'll all That's become so clear yeah is. you'll feel you'll feel the rightness of it and we did like a little naming ceremony um for lyra i was much more in tune with my like ancestral ways when i was pregnant with her so my pregnancy with her was very different from my first and there was much more ritual and intention brought into it from the beginning and so we i remember on this mountaintop we got those letter-shaped magnets in the letters of l-y-r-a and brought them and some tarot cards and some herbs and things and, and went on to a mountaintop nearby and kind of said, all right, we offer this, this name up. This feels right. And, and so it is. And that, that was powerful too. Oh, wow. You're giving me so many great conscious pregnancy tips. <laughs> Baby, <laughs> My pleasure. Mommy tips before we hit record. We were talking about birth, how I'm feeling a little, starting to feel the fear around birth. And Lola was sharing how when, when I'm going to actually stop talking third person, when you went to the <laughs> hospital, you brought this like bundle of intentions. And I was like, I'm going to do that just to help do channel it. the fear. So thank you for mama mentoring me. Of course. I mean, I, I found so much like groundedness in in 
being with my pregnancy in this way because all the stuff was up. Like I felt like I was bigger than I had been with my first pregnancy, which is so confronting as a woman in this culture. And I felt like I just wanted to rebel against so many of the structures and stories of what it means to be pregnant, what it means to be a mother, what it means to like give yourself away in that process and, and lose yourself in that process. And I just after doing so much work and reclaiming my identity, I refuse to give it away. I'm not going to. And it means being at peace with who I am, which is very complicated as a white woman when you have any awareness around that too. So mm. like, there's just been so many chances for me to abandon myself. And the further I get on this journey, the more unwilling I am to do that. Mm. Um, that feels like the perfect segue to talk about resilience, mm. which... Mm-hmm. I talk about it a lot in many ways to help those of us who feel a disconnection from our ancestors mm-hmm. and are resisting, whether it's through like fragility or paralysis or um, trauma response, like meeting a challenge in the world. You know, 2020 is is a deep initiatory year for all of us. When it comes to the COVID-19, when it comes to racial justice, who knows what's to come after we're recording this. And um, this conversation of resilience, I mean, me being heading into labor and birth, thinking about (laughs) all the women or birthing folk who have done this before and like that, you know, strength and resilience is in my DNA and my bones and and you have a perspective on it that really comes from your deep work with those who identify as empaths or highly sensitive people mm-hmm. about how to look at resilience in a way that maybe doesn't feel so intense <laughs> or harsh. So mm-hmm. I would love to hear about that and jam on that. I love that. I love that so much. And it's, you know, it is my life's work because of exactly what we've been talking about of this journey of how do I find who I am amidst the noise and, and dare to be that as fully as I possibly can. And it's particularly applicable to folks who are highly sensitive because their sensory system will keep them distracted and overwhelmed rather than in personal integrity. And, you know, to me, this is not a time to choose to remain in overwhelm if we want to affect personal and societal change. You know, like yeah. we we don't have the luxury of that anymore of like, ah, it's just too much for me. Like, no, no, no. But resiliency, and I think a lot of people, when they look at that word, it feels like it means toughness. Yeah, and right. Toughen up. Toughen up. And how many of us have heard that, right? You're too sensitive. You're too fragile. You need to have thicker skin. You are too much, you know, which of course then translates into not enough. Yeah. But to me, resiliency is actually not about being tough at all. It is about a number of things. It's about integrity. It's about integrity to yourself, because when you have integrity to your like your core values, what you truly believe in, your moral compass, which is deeply personal, then you have the ability to navigate challenges, not 
as a way of muscling through them, but because you trust yourself. You can't have deep self-trust unless you know who you are. And so resiliency at its core, to me, is about self-trust and belonging to yourself. And that is a reclamation process and a discovery process. And it's tender because so many of us have no freaking clue who we really are. We are taught to abandon ourselves at the altar of codependency or good enough or perfectionism. And so we, we don't know who we are. And then times come like this where we're asked to take a stand and we will get blown every single direction by every single voice and opinion unless we are centered in ourselves, which actually empowers us not to center ourselves in Mm. tough conversations. The only way you cannot center yourself is to trust yourself so fully and be so full of yourself that you can take a step back because you have nothing to prove. Mm. I feel like I'm better at that some days than others. Of course. You know? (laughs) And I'm a little like, when am I going to get there, Lola? Oh, (laughs) God. I mean, when are any of us going to get there? There's definitely no destination in this. It's like a lifelong body of work. Yeah. But, But the beautiful thing about resiliency, when you don't look at it as having to change who you are, but actually become and honor more of who you are, it changes the conversation um, because then you're not looking at yourself as inherently flawed, broken, not enough, or too much. And you're just looking at where are my strengths? Where are the pieces of myself that could use firming up, shoring up, equipping? And that's the other aspect of resilience that's really important is having equipment, having tools that further your self-trust so that you know you can navigate challenging times. We don't need resilience when things are good. Yeah, right. Right. We only need it when we're we're confronted and challenged, just like we don't need faith when we already believe. Mm-hmm. These are things that are called upon when it's uncertain and unstable. Okay. Tell me the tools. I got my little journal <laughs> out. My little good girl's ready to take notes. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Said like half, half serious, half not serious. <laughs> I know. I know. I get it. I'm the same. I'm like, all right, ready? Tell me what's what. The ABCs. Yeah. There's all different ways to develop our resiliency. Um, and resiliency really happens in a number of different areas of our life. You know, for lack of a better word, we need mental resiliency. We need physical resiliency, emotional resiliency, spiritual resiliency, systemic resiliency, communication resiliency, all of these things come together to create what I what I look at as like a full spectrum resilience. Because we can't just be resilient in one area. That's not that's not enough. You know, like it's it's not going to support us in a sustainable way. And we can look at the resiliency of our of our systems, not just as a culture, but in our personal life, like how resilient is my food system? Am I growing any of my food? You know, like am I am I localizing some of my supply chain for the things that I need? Who am I supporting? What are my values around that? Those things contribute to systemic resiliency, not just at a cultural scale, but on a personal scale. And so I look a lot to the tenets of permaculture and the the processes of permaculture for How do you look not just at your garden or your yard or your farm 
and design it in a permaculture way, but also your life. And what I love about permaculture is that it begins with you. There's these five zones, you know, and the further out your zones go from one to five, the wilder and less domesticated that area is, the less management, the less resources are required. But at the, at the beginning is zone zero, it's yourself. So systemic mm-hmm. resiliency at every scale begins with you. And so it's how do you how do you take care of yourself? How do you assess what's going on in your life, what your needs are? For sensitive people, we often are very out of touch with our needs because we have habituated and also out of trauma learned to attend to and be hypervigilant to everyone but ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it's very dangerous to the nervous system to begin to even have this conversation because it asks us to rewire our patterns of perception and reestablish self-worth so that we can pay attention to what our needs are without feeling like it's going to turn us into a narcissist. I mean, this work this work goes so deep. Yeah. It is it is so multifaceted and of course all these different areas touch each other, right? So there's no like clean and clear In my work, I have six pillars of resiliency, but really they all are woven in and out of each other like a complicated spider web. Right. Like I have my program where I'm like, we will talk about belonging, but it's not 90 (laughs) days to belonging. It's like zero to belonging. (laughs) We will spiral and we will spiral and we will spiral and we will get to know ourselves in the world in different ways. So exactly. Yeah, I hear you. I I think what I hear a lot from folks who are like ready for the change, like desperate to mm-hmm. to to know themselves, desperate desperate to want to show up in different ways. Um and I'm like, "Cool, okay. Like, let's go for it." And then having to look at like whatever that that sort of key thing Mm. is like religious upbringing or family trauma or um, white fragility or Mm -hmm. there's like the thing where it's like, I can't handle that. I cannot handle that. Um, So for me, like in my program, it looks like I'm too overwhelmed. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm going to take care of myself by piecing out, you know, or ghosting or whatever it is. And it's, I, it's like a pattern I see so much. And so I would love to know, your thoughts on that for, for when we want to run, when it feels like too much, particularly from this perspective of being highly sensitive, like when we think our circuits are blown and we can't handle it. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, it's important to acknowledge that our circuits might just be blown and that our, our nervous system is manifesting those behaviors as a way to protect us from a perceived threat. And the threat may or may not be real, but because our nervous systems are sensitized, which essentially means they've been traumatized in some way to become hypervigilant, we have to treat it like trauma work. Even if you don't identify with being a trauma survivor or can't find any specific traumatic event in your life that you think may have shaped this for you, nevertheless, the nervous system behaves the same. And so one of the ways that I start this in my work, and I talk about this a lot because Most of the highly sensitive empathic group of people are very interested in personal development and in helping others and want to be coaches and leaders and mentors. And they want to have, have had 
training around that and and maybe even training in marketing. I mean, all the different types of things, right? Training with belonging, with your work. And they have that pattern of flying away, of disengaging the moment it feels like it's too much. And that is why I start my program with saying, if you are someone who has has long known what it is you need to do, but haven't been able to actually follow through and do with it, do it, it's not your fault. It's your nervous system. It's where you want to start with your journey to resilience is understanding what is happening in your nervous system so that you can stay more present with yourself, so that you can stay with a process so you can discover the truth of who you are, which is that you're not a flake, that it's not too much for you, that you just need a different set of tools to support yourself so that your nervous system can go from reaction, protection, to responsibility, Hmm. to intentional and empowered responses instead of being on autopilot. And we have to have awareness around that to be able to make those changes. So my work with resilience starts with the four Fs, which are fight, flight, fawn, and freeze. And everybody has kind of a different dominant pattern. A lot of flight is what you were talking about with the, I'm going to back away. I'm going to shut it down. And it's a response from the sympathetic part of our nervous system, from our autonomic nervous system. Um, fight and flight are both part of the uh, the sympathetic part of the autonomic nervous system. And then freeze is a parasympathetic response. And fawn is a response related to the vagus nerve. And so all of these mechanisms are happening in our bodies based on patterns of protection we've developed. And so we need to find find our starting place there. How are we protecting ourselves? Why are we protecting ourselves? We, we might not have the content exactly of, of why, But to even know what the body is choosing helps us make more informed choices moving forward. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like even if you are like fleeing, you're like, I'm noticing that I'm fleeing again. Exactly. (laughs) It's like, it's life-changing information because first of all, you stop making yourself wrong and like, why can't I? And you start getting curious. Like curiosity has been a foundational value of mine in my life and definitely in my work. And when you can start to meet these behavior patterns with curiosity, it opens the door to begin to go, okay, well, like what's going on here? And and for every, every reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? Or for every action. And so there is a remedy in the nervous system and it's equal and opposite. And so when you have a pattern of flight, that looks like learning how to cultivate a healthy freeze, which means you slow down, you get yourself into the parasympathetic, you rest, you restore, you pause, not as a way of escaping, but as a way of presencing, where am I? What do I need? What, What am I trying to escape from? What is the bigger, deeper fear that this thing represents that I am perceiving at some level to be a threat to my survival mm-hmm. that's putting me in a state of stress? Mm-hmm. I don't know what fawn means. Fawn is a Vegas social relational complex where we choose to people please, essentially. So there was a, a great uh-huh. article <laughs> that came out, I think it was like last year, where it was saying people pleasing is a trauma response. And it's it's coming out of the work of Pete Walker, who wrote the book CPTSD from, thr- um, from Surviving to Thriving. 
out of complex mm-hmm. PTSD. And he's the one who coined, I believe, coined the word fawning to describe this reaction. But it is essentially a self-abandonment out of a way of surviving by earning love, by staying safe, by meeting said and unsaid needs, and basically remaining hypervigilant to other people's emotional energetic states so that you can anticipate and create safe space for yourself. It's deeply, deeply wired for a lot of empaths, as you can imagine, because they are they are attuned to the other more than they are to themselves for oftentimes for that very reason. Do you think it's related to martyrdom? Um, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, because you are you are a good person if you're sacrificing yourself for the good of others. And that's a deep, deep cultural story. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the I'm particularly thinking about wives and mothers mm-hmm. um ancestrally who like couldn't really yeah. control how many babies they had, mm-hmm. you know, and had to hold it together in some way and and identity was all around providing. Yep. Uh and how I just like hear from so many people who talk about like that's the inherited story from their mother and their grandmother yeah. and their great grandmother. And it's all and about so the kids. Re- and then really not knowing who they mm-hmm. were. And then feeling yeah. like it's a betrayal. Like you're truly a bad person. If you try to reclaim to, that. To meet your own needs. Yeah. That's a big yeah. one. It's absolutely a fawn response and it's it's a stress response. And so the more you behave in that way, the more stress your body is responding to and you get into a cycle of that. And so you also then have very real physical impacts from this. Yeah. I mean, we have, I don't know how many of our students are grappling with fibromyalgia, other yeah. autoimmune disorders, essentially the body attacking itself because they have been boundaryless. They have, I mean, there's a lot of factors to this, right? We can't just say this equals that, but there are definite correlations um, and patterns to how this tends to manifest physically. And it's fascinating because what I'm seeing is as you heal the nervous system, as you learn about fight, flight, fawn, and freeze, and begin to choicefully navigate these responses because they are for a reason. They exist for a reason. They are beneficial to us, especially when we can learn to partner with them differently. But when I see nervous system healing happen in our in our work, the the impacts of that are surprising. It's like, oh my God, I didn't have any idea this was going to help somebody at such a physical level. You know, here I am thinking we're just going to be doing some neuroscience work. And yet how can it not impact all these different areas? Mm-hmm. What was your primary response? Fawn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, absolutely fawn and a little bit of fight, but not in the way that you would typically think fight shows up. Where fight can show up in um, kind of a sneaky way for a lot of us is in our perfectionism. And so we end up actually fighting ourselves. So the fight is not usually directed outward. It's directed inward in the form of perfectionism and also in the form of the inner critic. Um, So those, those things have been very loud in my life. Very, very loud. Um, So it was, it was fight and fawn and then a little bit of flight, not so much freeze, but it's different for everybody. Right. A little, amazing little recipe. Which one is, I know. which one's stronger? Oh, how fascinating. Mm-hmm. 
so many connections in my own life. This may feel like a non sequitur, but it just, it keeps popping up is like the role of social media (laughs) and how it plays into, um, how it can play into either like exacerbating these, these patterns and, or healing them because Mm -hmm. like you're, you're a person on the internet. I'm a person on the internet. I'm just always curious about that sort of like, what are your practices? What are your boundaries? But I also know you've spoken to it before. So I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I actually wrote an article about this on my blog, which I can get you the link for if you want to share it. It's about social media addiction and empaths and why that tends to be so rampant amongst this population. I thought Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And of course, it applies beyond empaths, but that's my audience. So I frame everything in that way. But I see it as it can be a tool or it can be a weapon. And it's a weapon when we are in a pattern of flight around social media, which looks like I won't say what's on my mind. I won't share because then the people pleasing and fawn kicks in. Maybe I'll piss somebody off. Maybe I'll have to defend myself or feel like I have to defend myself. Maybe I'll get haters. Will they like it? And then therefore, will they like me? Mm-hmm. And so it can put us into a flight pattern of flying away from it or just a freeze of, I don't know what to do. And so I'm just going to sit here and scroll and scroll and consume and consume. And the fight can show up too with like, I'm going to be extra vulnerable and extra provocative, but my motivations for that are skewed because I'm, I'm feeling like I have to prove myself. Versus just being a form of expression, you know, with a release of attachment or expectations around it. Mm-hmm. It can be very performative. And that performative vulnerability, that performative activism is a is a faction of unhealthy fight in my mind. I can see that. I can definitely see that. I just notice I'm always in this curiosity around like my motivation. Yes. For posting or like when I'm in a healthy relationship, you know, according to me and my body and my nervous system and when I'm not, and like they all show up in all these different ways. Like, you know, I don't think I can actually be in a, I think I, I naturally need little breaks to recalibrate. Yeah. And I can catch myself in performative posting. I can catch myself in feeling the freeze and scroll mm-hmm. and compare. I can, I can catch myself in the f- in the being extra and the fighting, I can catch myself like going into comments and getting all, you know, it's just like mm. so interesting. It feels like such a, um, an opportunity to really like a mirror to really look it at is. what's coming through because so many of us are spending time, especially this year. A lot of us are isolated. That's where we can connect. Yeah. And it's great for that too. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to at all imply that social media is like the the villain or, you know, whatever. Um, we can be That's victimized how I found by you. just about anything. Exactly. It's like it's it's wonderful for for forming relationships, and it, just like any relationship, it is an invitation to reflect and to be honest with ourselves. And you know, like I have found myself in a freeze because of my own branding on social media because I had created uh-huh. this like, you know, big, big kind of like puzzle grid integrated. I mean, it was beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> I hear you, were, I hear you so you were to much. look at my feed like way long ago, I did this whole experiment with it, but it was so rigid 
and so perfectionistic and required me to get into Photoshop, me to like plan ahead for, you know, three months worth of content or whatever. And I don't operate like that. That is not how I operate, um, regardless of what my team might prefer. That is not how I function. I'm an ENFP. I'm like, you know, I'm of the moment. And so I was like not posting because I couldn't figure out how to fit what I wanted to say into this this design that I had implemented. And so like I had made this structure that was non-functional for myself on social media and then was like paralyzed by it. So then I just had to break the rules and be like, fuck the grid. I'm going back to like just saying what I want to say when I want to say it. Yeah. It was I've funny. definitely been tripped on aesthetic. Oh, oh my. Yeah. <laughs> I am right now. Like I'm not in love with what's happening aesthetically on my on my feed. I'm kind of uh-huh. like in a moment of exploration because I love it as an art form. I truly, I'm, I'm a graphic designer at heart and that's what my background started as. And so I yeah. nerd out over that stuff for sure. And I want to, I want to be like conscious of don't hem myself into a structure that doesn't function. Don't do it for the appearances. What makes my heart feel excited and motivated and peaceful and powerful in this space, you know, what's going to make me happy when I come across my own content? Because if I'm not happy with it, then what does it matter? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I go into that. I mean, I'm not a designer. But you have a great aesthetic, I will say. Thanks. I mean, there's intention behind it. And then there mm-hmm. are some there are some weeks and days where I'm like, nope, just got to get the message out. <laughs> just like, no, 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 no. And Don't then, be a perfectionist. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's I'm a tricky. living, breathing, seasonal, cyclical creature. Yeah. So we've got to make room for that, right? We've got to I make believe room so. Totally. Totally. Oh, Lola, I just want to keep going, but we got to wrap up here. Um <laughs> If people, <laughs> I've never addressed my audience like people. <laughs> if not people. Hey, people. <laughs> what I want to say is there's like so much goodness coming from Lola that I just, so people should definitely listen to your podcast, mm-hmm. which is called Empath to Power. Yes. Yes. Empath to Power. And follow your gorgeous Instagram and you have a program, but it's not open all the time, right? It is not open all the time. I believe that when this episode first airs, we are going to be on the cusp of our final 2020 registration. Cool. And it's called Empathology. And it's really like the science and art of being highly sensitive and resilient. For the leadership that's being the the opportunity of leadership that's here right now. And I fully believe that we need more sensitive spirits and bodies of all kinds in leadership, whether it's in leadership of your own life or if it's in your family dynamics or in your ancestral healing process or in your town or in governance, corporations, on your team at work. We need more sensitive souls with the resiliency that's required to be in those positions of power and leadership. Mm-hmm. And so my work really is built around offering very practical, grounded tools as many as as well as you know, witchy ritual awesomeness, but um, grounded in neuroscience, grounded in the way that the left brain can really grasp onto it because I find that the balance is essential. And so it's it's a powerful, powerful body of work. I'm so proud of it. Um, it's probably the best 
it is the best thing I've ever created. Ooh, yeah. I like hearing that. Yeah, go check it out and we'll have the links in the show notes at belongingpodcast.com. Lola, thank you for the generosity of your time and wisdom and everything. I'm so grateful to you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I know your time is sacred and the fact that you spent it with me talking about belonging means a lot. If you want to access show notes or links to old episodes, check out belongingpodcast.com. And if you know a friend who could really benefit from listening to this episode, share it with them. I'll talk to you soon.